go to your word again. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher and that you would help us to understand your word and that you would help us to understand the principles that you have laid out here for us this morning. And I just pray that you will again give clarity and that you will use your word as you see fit in our lives this morning. For your glory, I pray. Amen. We've been going through the book of First Thessalonians, and as we remember, Paul is writing the book of First Thessalonians from Corinth. Uh, Paul had come through. He is on his second missionary journey as he travels, and he, is plant, he has planted this church in Thessalonica during that time. Now, he couldn't have spent more than a couple of months there. We know for sure he spent three Sabbaths there, but he probably spent a little bit longer. He did some tent making, it appears. And so he at least started some commerce there until opposition came against the church and specifically against Paul and his, against Paul, and he was forced to flee from that city. And so he fled and he ends up here in Corinth, and we know he ends up in Corinth around, around 51 AD because he, we have an inscription there that the proconsul that he actually appears before only is in power around 50 to 52 AD. And so we know Paul is, is in uh, Corinth at this time. Now, as he's in Corinth, he again is fearful for the church back in Thessalonica. And so he has sent Timothy there to get a report. We see in chapter 3 that Timothy comes back with that report. And now Paul starts to give thanksgiving for what God is accomplishing in the Thessalonians' lives. And so he goes, he, he starts to give thanks. And, and he's not, again, giving thanks so much for the Thessalonians, but for God's work of grace in their life for what God has achieved in their lives. And he is grateful for the working of God in their lives. And as we went through this section, we saw that he, uh, we saw distinguishing marks of a work of grace in in a person's life. And so we, we looked at those distinguishing marks as God works a genuine work of grace of salvation in their lives. And that's what Paul is thankful for, what God has done in their lives. But as he switches to chapter 2, Paul changes subjects and he's changing direction here because as Timothy has come back, it is clear that that opposition to Paul is starting to try to undermine the work of that church and they're trying to undermine Paul and his, and his fellow workers as they came to Thessalonica. And so he's now gone on a defense. In other words, he's having to defend his ministry and the integrity of his ministry and the integrity of the gospel that he preached as he came to Thessalonica. And so through verses 1 to 12, Paul gives that defense here in chapter 2. And as he does that, we saw the distinguishing mark of a faithful shepherd. We saw how Paul came as a faithful shepherd with proper motives as he gave the word of God to the Thessalonians. In other words, he made that defense about what he, his ministry and as he brought the gospel to them. 
But as we come here, as we come to verse 13, we, we have another distinct section, another specific section that comes up in this book. And in many ways, it's a unique section in Paul's writing because it is, it is a second thanksgiving section. Normally, Paul just gives one, but here he's giving a second one as he starts to give thanks. And so he inserts this section of thanksgiving in verse, between verses 13 to 16. And so let us just read those verses, remembering that Paul is now trans, transitioning from back to thanksgiving, from defending his ministry and the integrity of the, the ministry that took place in Thessalonica. So let's turn in our Bibles then to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I trust we're probably already there. You were a little uh, wondering. He didn't say open your Bibles and start there. And so I know you've been uncomfortable to this point. But we're there now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning at verse 13. Paul writes as he's superintended by the Holy Spirit. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that, we may, so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost." There ends the reading of God's word this morning. So we are going, we're not going to look at all of these verses this morning. I, I know that first when I said 13 to 16, you were overwhelmed with the number of verses we were going to take. But actually this morning, we're only going to look at verse 13. We're only going to look at that one sentence that takes place in verse 13. And this first sentence of this mini section and we want to focus on this section. We want to focus on this verse because I think it's very rich in theology about the Word of God and how the Word of God is communicated, how the Word of God works. And I think in our, in our modern times, sometimes we need a reminder of this because we live in a day and age where the Word of God seems to be set aside for experience. It seems to be set aside for many other things. And yet the Bible is very, very, very clear how the gospel is to be translated, how, the word, how God is to speak to us, how we get to know knowledge about God. And so Paul transitions from his defense of his earnest proclamation of the gospel in verses 1 to 12 to this thanksgiving for the earnest reception of the word. Now you remember in chapter 1 to 12, when we talked about it, Paul defends the, his, his ministry there when he proclaims the gospel and how he speaks to them. And now in this Thanksgiving section, he begins to thank God for what? Their reception of the gospel. 
Now, if you looked at this verse, and if you looked at it carefully and you read it, and if you had it pointed out to you like it was to me, <laughs> you will notice that there is this word, there's this, uh, this phrase, this idea that is repeated within this verse. And it is the word, word. The word, word. We find it three, three times. Paul, as he goes through this verse, he starts to give thanks that you received the word of God, what you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. And then you'll see this little pronoun, which, which again implies the word of God. It is speaking of the word of God, which also performs its work in you. And so Paul is giving us a hint as to what he wants to talk about, what is important, what is the emphasis of this verse. And again, he keeps coming back to this idea of the word of God. And so as he comes to this section, we're really going to see how does God communicate his word to us? How, does, how do we get knowledge of God? How are we going to be able to understand God? And so Paul gives us in this, thanks, this Thanksgiving section really three ideas or, or three truths about the word of God that help us to understand how the knowledge of God comes about. How does God's word work? And so we'll, we'll see this morning, first of all, the proclamation of the word. In other words, how does the word, how is it communicated to you? How does the gospel get to you? How do you understand what God is saying? How do you have knowledge of God? How do you know his will? How do you know what the gospel is? How is that to be communicated to you? And then we're going to see the prodigy, or we could really see the origin of the word of God. Where does, where does the word of God come from? What's its source? Is it man? Is it God? Where does the word of God come from? And lastly, we'll see the power of God. In other words, we'll see the, how effective the word of God is in people's life. How does it work? What does it look like? And so Paul gives us all of that here this morning in one short verse. And we always say the Bible is, is, is a profound book. We can get so much out of so little because after all, God has written it. And even though he's written it in human language, he still packs more in than human authors can because he's God. So if you read, if you read verses 1 to 12, you might notice that as Paul defends his gospel mes message, how, you will notice how often he refers to, to the verbal communication of the gospel. In other words, the idea is the gospel is spoken. There is, it comes by sound to your ears. And Paul, through this first section of this verses 1 to 12, is very clear about the verbal communication of the word. He says in verse 2 and of chapter 2, he says this, We had the boldness in God to speak to you the gospel. In other words, we remember in verse 10 where he said, we live this perfect life in front of you and we, this is, we were upright in front of you. He doesn't say that here. He doesn't say we, we communicated the gospel by our uprightness. He says we what? Spoke it. We spoke it. Look at verse 3. This is, this is fascinating. And I just think that the power of this we need to grasp. 
he says, our exhortation does not come, right? With error or impurity by way of deceit. In other words, we spoke. You can't exhort without speaking. He says in verse 4, and we, just as we have been approved of God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we what? Speak. We speak. Verse 8. He says, having so fond of affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our lives. In other words, we, we imparted the gospel. Verse 9, we proclaim to you what? The gospel. We proclaimed. We didn't live the gospel. He's saying, not, not that they weren't living godly lives, but he's saying, this is how we brought it to you by proclamation. Verse 11 he says, we were exhorting and encouraging, imploring each one of you. In other words, again, the idea is speaking. We spoke the word, and there's this emphasis on the verbal communication of the word of God. And so he says, we didn't come and live a perfect life in front of you and hope you caught the drift. We came and we spoke, and we spoke words. We spoke propositions, facts, assertions. We didn't, we didn't just hope that you would catch this. And so, as I've already said, Paul transitions now from his defense of his ministry and the sincerity and the integrity of that ministry to focus on the sincerity of the reception of those words. And so he says, for this reason, we constantly give thanks to God. Notice he transitions from defending his, himself and his ministry to focusing on the reception of the words. And as, it, and, and as he does that, automatically, notice this, his attention goes where? Not to the Thessalonians, not to his fellow workers, but to God. He says, we constantly thank God. Now, Paul had already made those statements back in verse 1. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention you of in his prayers. And yet Paul, again, give thanks to God constantly. This was his pattern when he thought of them to give thanks. And Paul gives thanks to God because he recognizes this fact. that the response to his ministry, to the fact that the Thessalonians were responding to his ministry, the fact that they were responding to the message was not under his control at all. It wasn't about Paul. It wasn't Paul's great preaching. It wasn't even that Paul was this uh, necessary for God's program as such, but rather that God was using him and that the, the result of the ministry was God's, right? Now, that's for sure. Paul needed to be faithful. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they needed to be faithful to their ministry. They would be judged on their faithfulness, but they would not be responsible for the result. They needed that integrity. They needed that sincerity when they brought the message, but they did not have control of it. That is God's purview. That is under God's sovereignty, it is something that God takes credit for. 
The response to the word is completely under God's sovereignty. It's his prerogative. It's something that he, he says he takes credit for and he demands glory for. And Paul recognizes that it is not him that does this. Now, as we look further into this section, we come to some terms that we want to examine. There's some terms here that I think will really inform our thinking. And they will teach us about the communication of the word of God. And the first words that we see there is you receive. This, these verbs, you receive the word. It's an important word. And it means to take alongside or to take to oneself. And it has the idea of an objective outward receiving. In other words, it's, it's to take something from outside of you and take it alongside you. In other words, he is saying to them, uh, you received some abject teaching, some body of doctrine that was given to you. Now this was used in, this word was used in both rabbinic tradition as well as reception of, of teaching from a teacher by a student. And that, that reception was described by this word. In other words, there was this set of doctrines, this set of ideas that were set aside and given to them. You could say Paul, and when it comes to Paul, this is, this is the way that he uses this word. It is a kind of a technical term for receiving tradition. He says, has the same idea in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, if you flip the page. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord that you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and to please God. In other words, you, you receive this instruction. You, you've got this objective truth that was given to you, this body of objective truth that was given to you. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I delivered to you of first importance what I received. In other words, I got the subjective truth from Christ. I wasn't there in the upper room, but Christ gave me this to me. I, I, it was an objective tr body of truth that was given to me. That Christ died according to the scriptures. And so Paul uses this. Again, an ethical instruction of his converts that they received from him. Here is the objective truth that has been given to you. And so he describes this as receiving, you receive this objective truth. He says, which you heard. Which you heard. Literally, we could translate this, the word you heard. The word you heard. And again, it's in a passive voice. It indicates that the word received was spoken. So there's an emphasis here. Now listen, there's an emphasis here that the intake of information was through the ears. It came through your ear canal. In other words, words were spoken. There was uh, <laughs> sound waves that went across the air. They banged on your eardrum, went through the rest of it, hopefully to your brain, and you heard it. And he's saying, this word was spoken. 
You got the information through your auditory sense. One commentator translated, when your ears received God's message. When your ears received God's message. We see this same phrase used in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, where the writer of Hebrews says, For indeed we have good news preached to us, there it's spoken, but just, all, but just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them. In other words, they, 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 heard, they heard it, they understood it. It came through their ears, it's not like they, they didn't, it didn't get to them. He says, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. In other words, they didn't appropriate it because they didn't have faith. And so again, the emphasis here is on what hearing? The verbal communication of the word of God. And there's something that we can draw from this. The fact that is this. The divine communication of God's truth comes from outside you. It comes from outside you. It is not some, there's not some spark of truth inside you that if you look deep enough and if you are introverted enough and you navel gaze long enough that you will come up with some brilliant divine idea. And this is prevalent in our society today where people believe that somehow, and, and David Wells in his books, God in the Whirlwind, goes through this, how our society has moved where once God was objective and outside and his truth and his standard was out there, and now we have turned inside where we now believe that somehow God is inside us and we look inside for God to speak to us. And we all become necessary to hear the word of God because after all, he's speaking to me. And if we trace the origins of that, that doesn't come out of Christianity. That comes out of paganism. And so Paul says, listen, it, comes, it doesn't come from within you. There isn't a divine spark in you. Peter says, there's, there's no, the word of God is, doesn't come from your private inside you. First Peter 1.20, 1.23 maybe. It doesn't come from inspiration inside you. In other words, it doesn't come from human inspiration. You can't get God's truth from inside. In other words, you must get it from outside, from a quantifiable body of teaching received from the outside. That's the only way to get divine truth. Now, there's one other thing that I want us to look at in this verse, and, and that is just simply this prepositional phrase, from us, from us. He says, you received this proclamation, you received the word of God, you received this message, and it was given to you, this objective body of truth, we could call it the, the faith, you received it from the hearing, it came from outside, and you received it from us. You received it from us. And Paul is placing 
the emphasis here on the role of the human instrument. In other words, you heard it and you didn't just hear it, a voice from heaven. You didn't hear it as you were sleeping in your bed with a vision. You actually heard it while you were awake and you heard it from us. Now God uses means. God has, he, 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 he not only ordains what happens, but he also ordains the way that it is to be done. Right? God could have accomplished everything that he wanted without any kind of means, but he chose to use means. And Paul says, the means for which the gospel came to you was through us. Not through other people, but through us. I mean, not through other ways, but through us. And he says, it came through us, Paul, Silas, Timothy, as we shared the gospel with you. It was important. It was necessary. You wouldn't have heard it without us. You can't help but hear the echoes of Romans chapter 10 here, right? Romans chapter 10. In that wonderful text, Paul makes this proclamation and this promise. He says, For whoever will call upon the Lord, the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 13. And then he, as he goes to verse 14, he walks logically back to that promise. And he asks these rhetorical questions and he sa- of the text. And he says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And the conclusion that he draws here is they won't. They simply can't. In other words, the preacher is necessary. And remember, he's going down here. How can they believe? How can they hear? They need a preacher. So the idea is without a preacher, they won't hear. And if they don't hear, they won't believe. And how will they call on him if they don't believe? And Paul just walks it down and he says, There's, you need to have the instrumentality of humanity to bring the Word of God. Now, we would say at this point, and I just want to put caveat, the written Word of God. But God's design is that primarily the Word of God not, does not go out just written, but it goes out verbally by people who proclaim it. This is how He plans to bring men and women to salvation. In other words, it is necessary for the word of God to be spread by word. He has intended that men take the word of God and it will not be spread unless God sends forth his workers. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So as we think about the Word of God being communicated to us, there are some implications here. If the Word of God needs to be spoken, and if it needs to be heard, and it's to be used, the human instrumentality, and and I would say this, there are many of those who think that human instrumentality gets in the way. 
right? If it comes from a human, it's got to be wrong. And yet God clearly has used human instruments to bring his truth, right? A, a, lot, of the, a lot of the cults, right? You've got to get the truth from within, right? You've got to be able to get that truth and pull it out. The, the Gnostics have their secret knowledge. And he says, actually, no. You just need men to proclaim the word of God. That's divine truth. Now, there's some implications we can draw from this, and we've touched on this a little bit. Knowledge doesn't come from inside ourselves. It's not communicated from within. It must come from without. If we are going to find divine truth, we have to go not to the inward spark to find divinity, but to actually go to the objective truth of the Word of God, which is the divine mind. Maybe touching on that knowledge is... It cannot be communicated through feeling and experience. Much of our day, that is the truth that people follow. Let's follow after feelings. Let's follow after an experience. That's how I get my truth. I don't go to the Word of God. I measure, measure God's truth on how I feel today or the experience that I had or the experiences I've had in the past or the experience of others. And he says that simply does not work. Many people develop their convictions and their feelings on experience. How transitory. God's Truth is not communicated to you directly without going through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, period. Whatever you're, whatever you're experiencing and whatever's coming to you, you have no idea where that's coming from. That could be the coffee you drank, the chocolate cake, lack of sleep. We don't know. So what we do know is this. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's told us that we are to go and to give the gospel. He has chosen to use in human instruments. And if we're going to find divine truth, it must come from without. It must come through, through words, facts, assertions, commands. Through words, through the eardrums, or we could say for, through the reading of the word of God. It must come from Him. And so if we're going to hear the, the divine mind, if we're going to hear, get divine knowledge so that we know what God's will is, so that we know what God's plan is for us, then we're going to have to what? The implication is put ourselves underneath the Word of God. If it needs to be heard, if it needs to be, it needs to come from Him, that we need to put ourselves under the teaching of the Word of God. We must read the Word of God. We must put ourselves in places to hear the Word of God taught. So that we can ultimately hear the gospel, hear the truth, know God's will. As one commentator said, that leads us to Romans chapter 10, verse 15. 
How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. How beautiful are the feet. So he says, how do we, how do we get the knowledge of God? How, how, do we get, how, do, how do we get it? We get it through proclamation. We need to proclaim the word of God. God has intended it to be heard. It's intended for human agents to, to, take, to give it. And ultimately, he says, the, of God. In other words, it's not our message. It's his, the word of God. Now, there's, this is where we transition into that second truth that we have about the word of God. We talked about the prodigy or, or really with the origin. I was trying to come up with an outline, so prodigy in other words where 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 did the word of god come from where's its origin look at verse 13 in the middle of the verse we read these words when you received you accepted it not as the words of men but for what it really is the word of god the word of god Now, because Paul had brought the message and he had brought it to Thessalonica and because he was a human instrument, it was more than likely that those who were opposed to him, those who were critical of him and wanted to destroy the church, would latch on to that and say, look, he's just a man. He's just bringing human ideas. There's nothing great about him. There's nothing spectacular about him. He's not a particularly good speaker. He's not particularly bright. There's nothing special here. Move on. But as Paul moves to the center of this verse, he, he, he gives us a, a picture or an emphasis on the origin of his message. The origin of, of that word that came through his teaching, through his ministry with them. And he, did, and, and he emphasizes that this is a divine origin, that, this, that it comes from God himself. We read the phrase, the word of God. Now the wording here is interesting. Uh, the word here in the language has the idea of spoken word. We could translate it, it is the word that God spoke. You get that? You could translate it, it is the word that God spoke. So he's saying it's not about the word of God, which, is, which, is, which would under, undermine Paul's point here about the source of the word, but it is the words God speaks. The word God speaks. He says, when you receive the word that God spoke, which you heard from us. Now in the original, he kind of makes this into an awkward sentence. The translators, as you look at your Bible, there's some words here in the New American Standard that are italicized because they're trying to make this easy for us to understand. But sometimes Paul would mix up his words and he would put them not in an incorrect way, but he put them in a way for emphasis. And he wants you to remember, he wants you to, he wants you to grasp what he is emphasizing here. And he says, and, and literally we could translate this, when you receive the word heard from us of God. When you receive the word heard from us of God. It emphasizes that though Paul is the intermarry, he is the instrument or the means by which God brings the word, it ultimately or its origin comes from God. 
It is ultimately God who spoke. It is God who brought the message, not him. This is where if we look at Romans chapter 3, Paul refers, now listen to this, this is very interesting. I found it interesting, okay? Romans chapter 3, Paul writes this. Then what advantage has the Jew or the benefit of the circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul is referring to the Old Testament scriptures, the scriptures that men of old wrote, that Peter talked about. And so Paul identifies the Old Testament and, and by association, the New Testament as oracles of God. In other words, these are the sermons of God. These are the speaking of God. God spoke these. Yes, God used human instruments to write scripture on, on paper. But these are God's sermons. These are God's words. They originated with God so that when everything that they wrote was ultimately what inspired that's clear to us in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God. And he's saying all that constitutes scripture, all of the holy writings, everything that makes up the word of God, all of it is breathed out by God. It is breathed out by God. The idea here is not that God sighed, but the idea that God, as he spoke, breathed from his mouth. In other words, this came through us through spiration. In other words, it's as if God spoke and his breath came out, went over his vocal cords, and the sounds were made. He says, this is the word of God. Paul goes on, to say in the middle of the verse, you receive the word which you heard from us of God. He describes the aspect of, of, of accepting the word now, and this is important. He says, you, you accepted it. You accepted it. Now, this verb is, is different than the verb that we had before. It, it's similar that we saw, but the one that we saw earlier, we said that you received the word and, and the idea is that you heard it and understood it. You, you heard it through your eardrums and that, that set of facts and objective truth was given to you. And so it has the idea of re re receiving formal objective truth, a reception of body of knowledge. But the verb doesn't tell you what they did with it. It just tells you that they heard it and understood it. But it, it doesn't tell you what they did with it. And this one here has the idea that they what, accepted it, they, they took it, and they appropriated it. It's possible to receive the truth and do nothing with it, but this was not the case 
with the Thessalonians. They were different. And the difference in their lives was the fact that they accepted it. They received it in a subjective aspect, in a personal aspect. They took hold of it. They appropriated it. Now, there's a great text that we can turn to, though I don't like you guys to turn because then you get distracted and you don't come back. I was, I've been there. <laughs> that marks the difference between a believer and an unbeliever with the respect to actually welcoming the Word of God and hearing the Word of God, and that's 1 Corinthians 2.14. The same word that Paul uses to accept in 1 in Thessalonians 2.13 is used in 1 Corinthians 2.14. And so Paul writes as he is as he's writing to the Corinthians, and he says, and this is a familiar verse for us, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit. Now remember, we, we talked in class, in some of our classes, how it's not that the unbeliever cannot receive the word. It's that they cannot what? Accept it. They cannot appropriate it. Now they don't understand all the nuances, but they certainly understand when you call them a sinner. Right? They certainly understand those concepts. But their problem isn't the matter of receiving the truth and hearing it on their eardrums and having an understanding that they're under the wrath of an of a, of a angry God against sin. Their problem is actually appropriating, believing it, accepting it. It says, for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So they do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And, and again, referring in context to the Word of God because they are foolishness to him. He cannot take the truths of the Word of God and accept them. And that's what makes the Thessalonians an exception because all of a sudden here they are and they are appropriating, they are accepting the Word of the God. They are, they are taking it in. And it's not just merely because they sat under the Word of God. It's not because they went to church every week. It's not because they heard it and they continued to hear it. And just because they heard it, they became Christians or because they, they were around people like that. Not because it fell on their eardrums. It's not just because it became through human words. They received it and went on to act upon it and to call on the Lord for salvation. Now, there's something else I want you to notice in verse 13. Now, our, our, again, our English words here, and I don't like to do this, but I, I don't think they convey the original as clearly as we would like. So I just want to translate this a little bit more strictly. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. He thanks God for the reception, that they've accepted it, welcomed it, appropriated it that they've accepted it as truly as the word of God. And he says here, now again, there are some words by the editors here, but I do not think it needs to be smoothed out. He says, you accepted not the word of men, but it as it truly is the word of God. And so we see this strong contrastive here. 
viewed from which they appropriate it. In other words, they didn't accept the word of men. In other words, they did not take the message of the gospel that they heard as the words of men. Okay, he says, you did not accept the word of men. In other words, when we came, you didn't think whatever you're giving to us is just man's wisdom. You actually accepted it as it truly is, as it really is the word of God. Literally, they accepted the word spoken by God. And so these men didn't think that Paul, like some people, when they did miracles, were deities and, and to be worshipped. They didn't, the Thessalonians, as they heard the word of God, didn't think that they were somehow part of the Greek gods. They just recognized them for who they were, human beings, humans who were giving them a message. They were just giving them human words, divine words given to them by God. They weren't worried about the tone or the pitch or anything to do that. They were simply dealing with the words. And so they said, when, when Paul and Silas spoke, they didn't say, wow, that's good philosophy. They didn't say, wow, these guys have some brilliant human wisdom. They said, these are the words spoken by God. Therefore, they come with his holiness. They came, come with his authority and they come with his power. And they said, the Lord speaks and we submit to what he says. And this is how you can tell a true work of God. A true work of regeneration in a person's life is always marked by their view of Scripture. It is always marked by how they accept the Word of God. Will they accept it? Do they see it as the Word of God? Do they actually have a, a, a change of attitude to word, towards the Word of God? Remember, it was once what? Foolishness. A stumbling block. And yet, when true regeneration comes, like it did with the Thessalonians, there was a complete attitude change, a complete recognition and change of understanding of what they were hearing. And when you have believers, genuine believers, who have genuinely regenerated, who are born again, who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will see the word of God for what it is. Words spoken by God. Words spoken by God. It didn't originate with man. It's not human wisdom. It is the very words of God. This leads us to our third, thirdly, the third category of knowledge about the Word of God found in verse 13. Paul goes on in, at the end of the verse and he says, 
which, you, which performs its work in you who believe. There's this relative clause at the end of verse 13. Now there's some debate whether the pronoun which refers to God. It works who performs in you who believe. Technically the Greek would allow for that. But at the same time, when you look at the context of the verse and the word perform, it's clear that he is referring to the word of God. He is personifying the word of God, as it were. It's actually, it's the word of God. It's the word of God that speaks. The word of God is now like a person who is now active and and moving and operating He's not referring to the missionaries. He's not saying it's, it's the preacher. It's not the missionaries. It's not the preacher. It's not the Sunday school teacher who performs the work in a person's life. It's not the word that, it's not the, it's not the messenger that will transform. It's the word. It's the divine knowledge that transforms. The word is everything. Now let's look at verse uh, 13 again. It says, which performs its work in you. The verb that's translated perform its work means to put one's capabilities into operation. To put one's capabilities into operation. Now this word here, uh, again, has the idea it is never used of human beings. It's never used of human capability. It is always used of supernatural power. It's sometimes used of demons, but primarily of God and the word. And the present tense, it performs its operative, it's productive, it's continually producing an effect on the lives of those who receive it. It's the activating power of God's word. This idea is common in scripture. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrows, and able to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. See how active it is? It's able to judge. In other words, it's able for, to work in your life to judge your thoughts and intentions. 1 Peter 1.23, again, for you have been born Again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. Again, the idea of this, uh, the word of God working and being alive and making change. And so he says, here's the word of God. It is, it is the thing that changes people. It is, the, it is what transforms people. And finally, in this last statement, he says, who believe? Who believe? Paul is saying his readers personally know the operative power of the word. Its effect has wrought in their lives, is widely known. It has turned them to God from idols, committed them to service of the living God, and gave them hope of the return of the risen Christ and Savior and the saving from the wrath to come. So it was a transforming experience. It convinces every believer that who has accepted truly the word of God. 
And so the idea here is to believe defines you more closely, uh, sorry, indicates the condition under which the divine word operates in hearts. There must not only be a hearing of the word, but a continuing faith. It, it needs to be the abiding characteristic of a person. Genuine faith is a continuing faith. We would say this, maybe we could say it another way. This, this idea of who believe or to believe, of those who believe, limits the sphere in which the word works. It limits the sphere in which the word works. In other words, not everyone who hears the preaching of the word of God will have the word of God operating in their life. It will not change them and transform them. It may harden them. It may turn them away. But the transforming work of the word works within the sphere of those who have faith. In other words, it, it, is, only, it is limited to this work, to this group. And so as one writer said, the word of God is dead to those who are dead. It is dead to those who are dead. To those who do not accept, the word is dead. Again, that leaves us with some important implications about the effect of the word of God. Again, we said earlier that the, miss that the missionaries could not transform the Thessalonians. And we must understand in our mind the same thing. Pastors, counselors, Sunday school teachers cannot transform us. They are not the magic ticket. They cannot perform any change in you spiritually. Many people come to pastors and teachers and expecting the silver bullet. They're, they don't have the silver bullet in themselves. They can give you the truth of the word of God, but they themselves are powerless to help you. Now, if they give you the truth, that truth can change you. And that's why we would say inerrant Bible teaching devoid of truth, the devoid of the word of God cannot transform you. You cannot be transformed into Christ-likeness by lies. In other words, you're going to have to find a place that actually teaches the Word of God faithfully because you cannot be transformed. And there's lots of people who are going to mega churches who are being told all kinds of lies and there's no transformation because there's no power because there's no Word of God spoken. Good works can't transform you. Some of you might think, well, you know what? I, I, I need a change. I need a change. So I need to get working. I need to get busy, right? If I just start doing, then it's going to transform me. Guess what? It doesn't. It just doesn't. All you're doing is works right, is, is, is being a hypocrite, doing good works for your good, not for his you end up just doing works righteousness. And in our day, we have to recognize that human wisdom, self-help, philosophy, psychology, all of these things are not based on the truth of the word of God. They cannot transform you. They cannot change you. Yes, sometimes they can change your outward behavior. Sure. Sure. 
but you are only getting rid of symptoms. You are not getting rid of the problem and you need to be changed by the truth of the word of God. So it is the word of God that transforms. None of these other things can transform you. And Paul recognized that, and that's why he's giving thanks. He recognized that only God can change you through the power of his word. And if you've been a believer for any kind of time, and you're a genuine believer, you'll notice that this word is in work in you. You'll notice that there are changes taking place in your life. You'll notice that you're being transformed. You know that you're not the same person that you were a year ago. You're not the same person that you were 10 years ago. Now, there might have been some ups and downs, right? We always say the, the road of sanctification is up and down. It sometimes even seems like we are, we are taking two steps forward and two steps back and it doesn't seem like we're getting anywhere and yet oftentimes as we talk with others they'll say yeah there's a change there's you're different than you used to be and there's more victory and more desire for the things of god and so who do we give glory to for that for us no to him he deserves all the glory so again if it's the power of the word, if it's the one thing that is able to change us, then we need to allow it to do its work in our lives. We need to meditate on it. We need to study it. Not books about it, but study it. Spend time under the word so that it transforms us. We live in a day and an age where things are so busy and we are so distracted and we have phones and computers and televisions and radios and we have all of these intrusions into our lives to the fact that we now no longer spend any time in the word of God. And so we use our busy time and, and now we're, th we're throwing in cassettes of, of preachers but we never actually study the word. We never actually spend time meditating on it because it is only the meditation of the Word of God under the work of the Holy Spirit that will transform you. And we wonder, why, why aren't we changing? Why aren't I living in victory? And it may be just simply this. You're not spending any time in the Word that can transform you. And so if you want true change, biblical change, godly change, it must come through the Word of God. Martin Luther said, the soul can do without everything except the word of God, without which none of all of its wants are ever provided. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word and we thank you for giving it to us and we thank you for a look at your word this morning and I pray that we would be convinced of the way that your word works and these truths about your word and then we would recognize that it must be proclaimed it is outside of us an objective that we would recognize that it is originated in you and it is as if you spoke them, they are your words. And that it has the power to transform lives. As we looked at the Thessalonians, how you marvelously changed them. 
I pray, too, that your word will work in our lives and that it would change us. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.